You're listening to Money and Meaning, Unlikely Allies, Building New Markets for Impact, with your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. Check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. Let's join the conversation. Welcome back to Money and Meaning. I'm your host, Alex Kravitz. I'm really excited to bring you today's conversation. I just got back from Austin, where we partnered with the Local Impact Hub to host a panel entitled The New American Dream, Creating Intergenerational Wealth for All. Well, the entire panel was really thought-provoking. There was one panelist comment made toward the end of the session that really resonated with me. She brought up the point that far too often when we have the opportunity to shift the system, instead we vote on the side of convenience. We think of ourselves as progressive for voting for Beto over Ted Cruz, but we're simultaneously voting against a low-income housing development in our neighborhood, or expanded train service that would provide labor mobility to an underserved community. While many of the examples used during the conversation are regional, the subject matter couldn't be more universal. For today's conversation, our moderator is Ruben Cantu, the Executive Director of the Office of Inclusive Innovation and Entrepreneurship at UT Austin. He does a great job introducing the other panelists, so Let's jump right into the conversation. Without further ado, I would like to invite our panelists one by one. Steve Wanta, will you join us on stage? He's the CEO of Just. And the thing I like about Steve, he says, money matters, but it's not enough. And it's not enough. There's an and there. Family here. And it's so true, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. Second to him, I'd like to invite Virginia Cumberbatch, the Director of Community Engagement at UT Austin. <laughs> and after, him, after her, I would like to invite Wallen to the stage, and I want him to give the perspective of his startup space uh, in his journey in creating a company. So I would love to go ahead and pass the mic to you guys and just go down one by one and have you guys introduce yourselves, and then I'll kind of preface it with some data points so we can get this conversation off the ground. Uh, hi, I'm Wallen Wallace. I'm the co-founder and CEO of 3Data. Uh, we build virtual reality and augmented reality graphs for companies. Um, kind of my, my you know, interest in being here is not only to engage in some, some purposeful conversation, uh, but to really tell about my story as an African-American CEO trying to raise venture capital. Uh, I'm blessed to have my co-founder here today, uh, Tyler, who's my other half of kind of the company. Um, so we are a very diverse company. We believe in diversity um, and really trying to start conversations that aren't very easy with people. So excited to have uh, some awesome conversation with you guys. Uh, well, good evening. First of all, thank you again to, to Ashley and Impact Hub and to Alex for creating space for this conversation and Ruben for inviting us to be up here. Um, it's always great when you feel like, I'd rather be down there listening to the people next to me. So um, I'm excited to have this conversation. So I serve as the Director of Community Engagement and Social Equity at the University of Texas. Um, I basically distill my job is to make UT less of an ivory tower and more of a community anchor. What does it look like to leverage the resources of a top tier research institution to truly carry out its community mission, right, especially as a state institution, to address issues of equity and access in the community. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I do in my work is um, 
very much context-based, right? That we can't just start from where we are in 2019. We need to have an understanding of the historical context of how we got here. And so I'm very grounded so much in storytelling and history. And so some of the work that I've done around sort of documenting that and sort of writing about that is some of the things I hope to bring to this conversation tonight. My name is Steve Wanta. I am the co-founder and CEO of an organization called Just. Uh, we invest in low-income female entrepreneurs uh, to create more resilient communities. The reality, and I think that's, I've had to figure out what we are, uh, and that seems to be the most uh, simple way of saying it, but it, it, we're talking about a very complex issue of access to opportunity, um, equity. There is so much more profound elements of humanity that uh, it is difficult to put in words. I think we think oftentimes it's, it truly can only be experienced. Uh, I've been able to do this work because for 10 years, I worked for Whole Foods Markets Foundation, Whole Planet, and we funded microcredit around the world in a really weird way. Um, and I can tell you about that, but generally speaking, my role here will be to uh, talk about power. And you know, I am obviously representative of uh, the power structure, the white dude, and ironically, uh, we support exclusively, exclusively Hispanic women. So yeah, that, that might not make sense, but we'll get to that at some point. Um, <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. So the racial wealth gap is widening with predictions that by 2020, the median white household will own 86 times more wealth than its black counterpart and 68 times more wealth than its Latino one. So here we have a lot of skewed um, numbers. And my quick question is, how did it get to this point? What, what, because things don't just happen. I mean, people are like, oh, it's just by chance. But we all know that things were engineered a certain way. Can y'all tell me historically, in your opinion, what helped lead to that? Can we start off with Virginia? Sure. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna talk a little bit about the national context and then we're gonna bring it down to Austin because I think that's where we're engaged, right? That's why we're here, is to make our city more equitable. Um, so, you know, on a national level, institutional memory is really powerful. And one thing that we can claim as Americans is that we don't do a good job of telling the truth about our own stories, our own way of creating structures and systems, right? So when we think about the ways in which America created its wealth and then maintained that wealth, right? If we take ourselves all the way from the stealing of land from indigenous people to um, creating most of our economic power based on slavery, right? And then we talk about the impact of policy. Well, great, we emancipated black people, right? But then we created a system through policy that maintained um, a certain status or limited social mobility, right? Whether that was Jim Crow in the South or that was through socialized policy in the North. And then America created a system in the early 20th century, um, particularly in the 30s and 40s, that um, aligned wealth creation with home ownership. Well, if you are redlined to certain parts of your city where you do not have access to homes, right? You can't purchase, so you're renting your whole life, or you're leasing your whole life. And then on top of that, you're getting bad loans from the bank 
right, you are not able to build wealth. And then we love to talk about sort of these social constructs of bootstrapping and like my great-grandfather worked for everything he had. Well, did your great-grandfather serve in the military in World War II? Okay, well, let's compare that to my great-grandfather who also served in the military in World War II. Well, one of us walked away with a free home and a free college education. One of us was sent home with a letter for service, right? So when we think about the structure of how wealth is built in America, it's not only systematic, but it becomes, um, it becomes exacerbated by the ways in which policy has been used to maintain levels of power. And then if we move ourselves into sort of the civil rights movement, right? Okay, great, we got let go of Jim Crow, but then we talk about the ways in which redlining, while not necessarily on paper, was still functioning at a high level on who could get access, not just into terms of personal ownership, but also business ownership. So now let's bring us back to the Austin context, right? How many of us have heard about the 1928 plan? Not enough hands. Okay, so 1928 plan. So how many of you guys know about Clarksville, Kitchenville? Right, so if, or um, Wheatsville Co-op, if you show up Wheatsville Co-op. That name wasn't just picked out of thin air. Those are the names of the first freedmen towns, not just in Austin, but the state of Texas. So when Abraham Lincoln was like, yo, let the people go, and like the tweet came a little late to Texas, we were like three years behind the curve. Well, we formed these freedmen towns, right? And that was prime real estate. So prime that the city of Austin said, we need our hands on that. So in 1928, they decided we're gonna be really proactive, we're gonna put together this city plan, we're gonna be strategic. Can we have access to that land? Black people were like, nah, thanks for coming. And the city said, great, well, we're going to cut off your access to city resources unless you move. No trash, no electricity. Right, and so they moved black and brown people to what we now know of as 35, but at the time was East Avenue. And that was literally trash dump. Like, that's where the refineries were. Um, and so when you think about how the city has been divided into not just East to West, but resourced, not resource, access to, to quality schools, access to schools that have struggled past, you know, integration, all of these things are signals around where we invest and where we don't invest. And which brings us today in terms of still accessing homes, right? And still being able to, be, to get loans for your businesses. When we think about the East 11th Corridor, and that was owned by mostly black and Latinx families. And we couldn't get city infrastructure support, but now that we've gentrified and the tone, um, the melanin has changed a little bit, right? All of a sudden we're able to get investment, all of a sudden the bars that we asked you to take off the windows of city-owned land is taken down, and businesses are able to thrive. Um, so when we think about where we are today in terms of infrastructure, it's very important that we're truthful with ourselves. We're truthful for how we got here, that this is in our city's DNA. It was a policy that is still having effects today. And it's not just policy, but it's also socialized practices where we like to think of ourselves as a very progressive liberal city. But honestly, that tends to be mostly just what we do at the ballot box and now how we're operating in terms of our investment and in terms of our um, commitment to equity. Thank you, mic drop. <laughs> Tell it how it is. Steve, Steve, why is, um, well, you can answer that question, but I wanted you to add to that. Why is it so important that we distinguish income versus wealth? Uh, well, if you just look at history for a second, uh, global microfinance, 
really came, became popularized in the 70s, 80s, and took decades to get to where it is today. And if you know about Kiva or all this other stuff, it's like super cool and really easy. Reality is when it first came out, women in Bangladesh could not touch money, right? So when you talk about massive system problems, that was its really clear example. Um, what I am amazed by, what I was amazed by while I was a funder in the United States, you know, overseeing uh, the work that we did around the world, and we were also trying to figure out how we could support entrepreneurs in the United States that were poor or excluded, whatever term you want to give to it, to a class of people, the reality is the system was fundamentally flawed in the United States. And I, as a like, almost a novice, it was super easy because I had this context from around the world. If you're poor and you want to invest in a new future, how would you ever look at my past? Like, how would you look at my income or my assets that I don't have and value my future on that? It's just so foreign. So when I think you think about income and wealth in the United States, income is, I mean, it's, we all talk about the real way you get rich is through, uh, through equity, through actually through investing in a business, the, the tech company that takes off. I mean, that's really where wealth comes. A paycheck will just get you to pay your bills. So income inequality is important, but you cannot tap into so many other things if you don't have wealth. How many people have been gifted their first down payment to a house. How many people, so there's all these system things and I just look at it from a lens of entrepreneurship and really simple people that um, might make uh, tamales or, or clean houses or buy and sell things. You can't even do the minor thing about buying a better piece of equipment because you don't have that better piece of equipment already to guarantee that piece of equipment you're gonna buy next. So, you know, they're both important to talk about. This is hopefully going to be a bigger conversation that happens across the country, the, the wealth inequality. Because one, a guy that I um, saw speak recently talked about the, the, the difference between equality and equity and, and, and the picture that many of us have seen is the different size boxes. And this guy's point was, no, there should be a hole. Everybody should be the same height, and there should be a massive hole that one person's standing in. And that's what the wealth inequality. Thank you. And Wallen, why would you dare to try to go and start, go into the most riskiest place that you could and create startups? Like, what implored you to go and try to make this the way? So I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out, but... Um... <laughs> You have to be absolutely crazy to be an entrepreneur. Uh, you hear that all the time. Um, I think the couple people I had the conversation with, you know, who saw my name tag, saw that I was, you know, very interested in data, and data is what keeps me going. Um, there's multi kind of levels to that. Uh, a couple of data points, like Ruben said, um, one percent of venture capital goes to African American founders. One percent. About ten percent of Startups overall raise financing. So I knew I was going up against the odds unlike anything else. Um, but when I started to explore this, I, I, I started to think, okay, 
you know, who can I look at as an example? And you have the Elon Musks, and you have the Steve Jobs, and you have the Bill Gates, and you have the Mark Zuckerbergs. Um, and I, I saw a huge gap in the opportunity to set an example for people to say, hey, you can do this too. Um, no matter what school you went to, no matter what company you worked for. Um, I'm from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and so is my co-founder, Tyler. Um, as you can see, I'm black, he's white. Uh, it works if you have conversation. Um, as, as, as kind of, you know, from Milwaukee, I, I'm a huge statistic guy. 53% of African Americans over the age of 30 have been incarcerated in Milwaukee. So not only do I have a better chance to get struck by lightning raising financing, I have a better chance to be locked up uh, coming from where I, from where I came from. Um, so the fact that we visualize data and make data, you know, relevant and understandable for everybody is what gets me up in the morning because I know I'm one of the data points, I'm the anomaly, I'm the outlier. So someone has to be the one to set an example for African-American founders who want to get into high technology. You know, I work in, in virtual and augmented reality. So we're pretty much to the bleeding edge as, as bleeding edge gets, unless you, you're talking quantum computing. And if you are, let's have a conversation after this. Uh, but as far as kind of crazy technology goes, the last thing people usually expect when they look at a CEO or co-founder is me to walk in the room. Um, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I've walked in the room and been the only black person there uh, with hundreds and hundreds of people. You know, whether it's, it's with a Facebook conference or a Google conference, it doesn't matter. The only people who are kind of doing what, you know, I'm doing are, are the white people from Stanford, Harvard, and, you know, Ivy League Plus. Um, I don't have a background. I went to school in Wisconsin. I, I was a big statistic and sports guy, which kind of led me into data. Um, but after seeing these data points and seeing kind of, you know, how the odds are stacked against me, um, it's the only thing that really incentivized me to break that barrier. Uh, so that's kind of what led me down my crazy entrepreneurial journey. Uh, but someone's got to be the one to say, hey, I'm going to bet on this kid. And I've been blessed enough to have, you know, angel investors and <clears throat> kind of other investors who believed in me and believed in my vision and my mission. Uh, but what, what really kind of staggers it, you know, is, is the amount of investors who are African-American as well. It's about 2% of venture capitalists are African-American. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've been, you know, in, in a room with a, a, a white investor who said, you got to find some, some black investors to get you going. And I was like, well, I'm the only you know, African-American doing what I'm doing. Do you know any black investors? He's like, no, but, you, you know, just Google them and find them. It's kind of like a chicken and egg thing, you know? It, it, it takes <laughs> blackinvestors.com. Um, it's like, how do, you, how do you find these people? You know, it's, it's who, who, who's there to try to help guide entrepreneurs of color uh, to, you know, not only start their own business, how do you do that? It's not part of the culture. Um, it's usually when you see the people who have wealth, like we we're saying, you know, you see the rappers, you see the athletes, you see the musicians. Um, and that's kind of what you know to be the way to make it out. But if we start to look at technology and, and getting equity and start to raise financing and investing in more you know, African-Americans of color, uh, we have a chance to break this cycle. But it does take those people who are willing to you know, bet on the African-American CEO. And uh, you know, when you're looking at tech, a lot of this is, is, is patterns. You know, we let algorithms decide how we act. Um, with venture capitalists, it's no different. You know, they look for the algorithm to make the least risky investment. Um, I'm not sure if you guys have ever tried to fundraise, but it's usually, you know, three to four stages. You have the friends and family round, you have your angel round, you have your seed round, then you have your series A. Most big venture capitalists only get involved in series A because they know, hey, you found product market fit, you have some revenue going, 
less risky, you know? But what about the black entrepreneurs who are trying to, you know, start a company with an idea? Uh, it's called a friends and family round. Most black, you know, African-American entrepreneurs, their friends and family, total net worth is right around 11,000 on average. So I'm supposed to go to my family, who doesn't have the resources to be able to support my venture, to say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm raising money for my, my, my idea, virtual augmented reality, and uh, I'd like you to cut me a check for, you know, forty to $50,000. It's, it's not feasible. It's a systematic problem that we're looking at where the numbers don't add up. Uh, but the more we can start to have conversations and say, there are outliers out there who, who you know, you should invest in and have conversations with, uh, it's who's willing to engage in those conversations and believe in someone who doesn't fit the pattern. Uh, so that's kind of my, you know, opinion on investment and startups because you have to be crazy to start a company and you have to be even crazier to be black and start a company because <laughs> it's almost impossible to raise money. I've been very blessed to have you know, investors who believed in me um, and have a venture capitalist back me. Uh, so I, you know, my, my sole mission, I tell my team this as much as I can, is how can I give more people the same opportunity I got? You know, how can I find other ways to open up a door that was so hard for me to kick down uh, just by doing it? you know, and, and, and trying to mentor entrepreneurs um, on, on that journey as well. Um, so that's kind of how I got into startups, but it's, it's a, a, a huge conversation topic of how can we change it. You're listening to Money and Meaning. I'm Lindsay Smalling, and you can find out more about the SOCAP conference, SOCAP 365, and sign up for our newsletter at socialcapitalmarkets.net. Next question goes for Virginia. What has the typical American dream meant to most people? And what does it mean in the traditional sense to people of color? So when Ruben first sent us these questions, I was like, American dream? Um, I don't find that appropriate, uh, historically or contemporarily, um, because the American dream was created for those that had create a, created a system of oppression, right? So this idea of the American dream uh, was never meant to include or be accessible to most people of color. Um, and so the idea of the American dream, I think, um, one, needs to be recalibrated for what that means. You know, um, when you were speaking about the idea that, you know, black and brown people, you know, are not being as involved in the entrepreneurial um, sort of conversation, I think it's really interesting because if you take most of the 20th century, that's how we made our bread and butter was through bootstrapped businesses, right? Like you could go into one of our communities and we would have at least five restaurants and hair salons and, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, entrepreneurial um, sort of efforts that allowed people to make ends meet. Like that was truly the spirit birthed out of the African-American community because it was of necessity. And I think when you looked at sort of the baby boomers, so like my parents' generation, the idea was you now have the opportunity to go to college, right? And so the expectation is that you will get into the workforce and bring income that this family has never seen. And we kind of let go of this idea of wealth building, uh, which was we can still have these experiences um, of investment and of building our businesses. Um, and so I think we're coming back to that with our generation, realizing that our parents 
yes, we're able to send this to college, right? But we want to be able to take care of our children and our children's children and our children's children's children like some of our white peers have been able to do because they were gifted. Like I have family, I have friends that I went, I'm from Austin as well. Um, and um, so black unicorn sitting up here, you're welcome. <laughs> and I have friends whose parents just wedding present. Here's a full house in Hyde Park. Right? I mean, when you think about the context of the statistic that Ruben just shared, which is that half of our city is not just struggling to amass wealth, they're struggling to pay rent, to pay mortgage, right? And we see this shift in the visibility of people in color because we are being, we're creating suburban poverty, right? We're being pushed out of the city and therefore pushed away from resources and access that would allow us to invest in the city and to um, be a part of you know, our economic and social mobility. And so this idea of the American dream or the Austin dream, I don't think can be realized until we truly reconcile the systems that are a part. And a lot of times we like to think of systems in the sense of policy, city hall, right? But there are systems that are being, that function at Google. And there are systems that function at the University of Texas, right? In terms of who we allow to have access into these spaces, right? And Austin is such a town that is committed to the idea of um, our periphery, meaning I provide access and opportunity to the people that are closest to me, the people that are in my, my line site, right? And so that's a lot of how investment works. Well, Bob told me that John was good, so I wrote him a check, right? Well, you, my name wasn't even on the list. I wasn't even able to be at the table, or better yet, people I knew didn't help build the table, right? And so the idea of the American dream or the Austin dream, I don't think can be fully realized until we are prepared to dismantle some of those systems and leverage the power that some of us have. You know, I think it's all well and good for us to continue to perpetuate this lovely PR buzz of being progressive and liberal and not racist, but the truth is in the statistics. So we are functioning as a non-progressive racist city. If the people that have access to one of the um, wealthiest cities, right, in this state, um, does not reflect the population um, that lives here. Another mic drop for that one. <laughs> so I dare, dare ask uh, Steve really quick, because what Virginia said is true, that we still need to dismantle the, the systems that have been created, but um, I consider you an ally, and... Uh, I'm proud to call you a friend in the work that you do. How do we help create a stronger bridge to the um, mainstream community to help understand and see the light of the work that needs to be done without being... Do I get to speak up? for all white people now? <laughs> Not Fantastic. really. This is what I've been waiting for. But uh, I want your perspective of what you would personally think. Okay, so um, I could not agree any could not agree more with Virginia. Um, as I mentioned before, money matters and it's not enough. I, I unfortunately see the world, or I fortunately see the world uh, through its, as much as humanly possible through the reality. So I think what our best opportunity to make as fast a change as possible is through an and. Um, 
I'm from Wisconsin as well, so I am Green Bay, go Pack Go. Uh, so we from the Midwest are really kind and we don't like to offend anybody. So what we do is like we try to build around the edges. So for, for us, I unfortunately, I think it would be awesome if we could light a match to the whole thing and have a nice replacement system that would come in and make it right. Um, I don't think that's going to happen. I think the white dudes around the table are going to make sure that power does not. But today with technology, there is new worlds that have not have yet to be seen. Um, so I am continue to be optimistic. What I fundamentally believe that has to happen is that we have to solve for trust and that trust has to continue to be to spread. And that means we can't look at someone's past. We have to create a new opportunity to whether it's finance their future or say yes. It can't be we're picking winners. Um, so that's what we try to do with Just is take what happened around the world and because there is no credit scores. You, there was very clear people dying of famine, so you have to create a new system. We haven't felt the acute enough pain possibly to go and, and build that alternative system that can serve every single person that wants to. So I, I, I believe that you know, we fundamentally have to, to figure out something new. We have to work together. I try to present to the bankers a way that seems really comfortable for them. Because um, they're scared too. I don't think they're scared. They think they have the answers because they have the power. And it's, this is the whole deal. It is power. And unfortunately, very few people consciously turn over power in a thoughtful way that is designed for someone else to be successful that historically hasn't had it. What, what does this dream look like for you, Wallen? What do you want to help accomplish? So, I mean, I, I feel like there's, there's so many awesome points that were just made. Um, I think the fundamental disconnect between people talking about race is the communication. Sitting down at a table and saying, this is how I feel, and this is how it makes me feel when this happens, and just sitting there and listening and trying to empathize with each other. And you know, I'm gonna ask a, a question. How many white people here have been the only white person in the room before? So a handful, you know? That's every day for me in most of my life, every single day. And it's hard to empathize with somebody like that if you don't have conversations about things like that. So with what I'm doing, you know, I want to prove that it doesn't matter what you look like. It matters about one, your team that you put in place, two, your ability to execute, and three, the ability to bet on the human spirit to change the world. And I tell my guys every morning, look, you guys are following me with 99% chance of failure. Everybody knows that. But you follow me because of the opportunity of change and the opportunity to really change the way that people look at technology, African-Americans, and with virtual reality, there are no winners and losers yet. So we're at the forefront of, of most of this bleeding edge technology. You know, we, we, we talk about what can we really do for a kid who's never you know, used a computer uh, that is now able to put on a virtual reality headset and be anywhere in the world. How can that affect his ability to, one, empathize with people, but to communicate? 
and really start to have feelings for experiences he would have never been able to feel. Um, so for me, it, it's, it's really breaking down that barrier of communication for people because now we can connect people like never before and let people walk in each other's shoes and really start to empathize with each other and say, wow, that really is a powerful experience um, that I'm able to now sit down and, and look you, you know, eye to eye and say, I, I see us as equals. I'm, I'm not going to hold the power over you uh, because of the system. I'm willing to release the power to you because I feel like this is a risk that I'm willing to take. And I want to be the person to take that risk in order to change. Um, so it's, it's, it's a multi-layered conversation, but for me, it's really being able to break down the barrier of communication because I've, I've been blessed to have a very diverse team, uh, people from all different backgrounds who are able to come together and say, look, we believe in you because you, you know, you're a black CEO in, 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 in VR, of all technologies, everyone's like VR. Um, but it's, it's the one place that this is, this is the wild, wild west. You know, I have, a, I have a, uh, the best chance to, to do this as well as anybody else because the only other place that they're doing this is in Silicon Valley. So I'm now on the same playing field as some of the more intelligent, you know, influencers in, in Silicon Valley as a black CEO out of Austin. Um, so most of the money we raised, you know, unfortunately is out of Silicon Valley and not in Austin. Uh, but it's, it's a place where Austin's still trying to get over that, that hump with a lot of the, the power and, you know, the racism that's built into the system. Uh, very risk adverse, very, you know, kind of a, a, a confrontational with anything that's, that's different. Um, so for me, it's, it's really being able to bring that to Austin and break down those barriers of communication, saying there's a black CEO who made a huge ROI for every angel who bet on them. Um, you know, we should look at more opportunities like this. So I just want to really quickly, what the American dream for me would be is that we all believe the future is possible, the future we want is possible. And I know speaking from my, I actually believed anything, uh, it, I could do anything. And I know from our clients that we serve that many of our entrepreneurs uh, now see their future different because they have access to capital, they have access to supportive community, so they start to change their own internal narrative. You know, one, one uh, woman, Leticia, she, grandmother, um, cleaned six to eight houses a week before entering just now. She has three employees, cleans 40 houses a week. And more importantly, the narrative she held so closely for a generation when she did not know how to save. The month of November, she saved $4,000. So Letty has a lot to teach all of us, but now it's just a smart start, and it's one story, but if we can all believe that it's possible, and then there's a system that backs it up, um, that it's not one in a million, then I think that would be pretty sweet. I would also just to piggyback on that, you know, this idea of like shifting the narrative that's both internal as well as collective, and I think on the collective front, you know, um, again, sort of the idea of like, we are an innovative city, right? We, we hold that title to be true because we have brilliant entrepreneurs coming out of here, right? And not just the Silicon Valley. Um, and so I think the frustrating part, but also the hopeful part is that we literally have everything that is necessary at our fingertips to shift us into a city that is truly equitable. We use the example of um, for 100 years, the University of Texas was one of the largest um, universities in the country that didn't have a med school. That med school was built from nothing to having a full th 
three building brick and mortar, fully funded, first class in, in less than three years. That's insane. That means there's enough money in this city, enough people who have the ability to say yes and create a green light, and enough interest, right? That's the key word, interest, that that was something that we held true as a value as a community that was important to us. We wanted to be on the forefront of health, wellness, and medicine. So if you can imagine if we were to take that same spirit, spirit, the same value of we are committed to this, right? The same innovation, the same wealth, we could eradicate homelessness in Austin. We, we could. could eradicate the issue of not having affordable housing. We could eradicate the issue of like mass disproportionate in, in uh, disciplinary action. In our, so it's a matter of A, what we value, B, what we're willing to, to invest in and put um, and not be risk averse. So I think that's part of like where the hope lies for me is that everything that we need is right here. It's a matter of us putting it into a context that allows us to say yes to certain things that historically we've said no to. Virginia taught me something um, that was very powerful. If you do not know, please go to Amazon, check out As We Saw It. Virginia wrote that book, shout out to Virginia for putting that into context. Thank you. So one of the things I learned from the book is while in 1958, Heman Sweat was the very first um, graduate from the University of Texas, actually admitted. First black man admitted to the University admitted of Texas. Admitted to the University of Texas. It wasn't until 1964 until the dorms were integrated? So Heeman Sweat entered the law school at UT um, in 1951, and then we opened up the undergraduates in 1956, and then we didn't open up, we didn't integrate dorms till 65. So 15 years after integrating the University of Texas. Can, and then can, to give you a little bit more context to hit home for those of you who did watch the Super Bowl last night or two nights ago, yeah. um, we didn't integrate the football team till 1971. Right, so that's like five years after my parents entered, or before my parents. So we think about like slow movement, but again, based on what we valued as can, a city. And as can a you tell them really quick why we decided to integrate the dorm rooms and why it was politically expedient to do so? So, I mean, the original um, arguments for not integrating was, cool, y'all can come here and get a piece of paper and a diploma, but you're not gonna be sleeping in the same rooms as our children, right? Particularly white women. So black people had to live mostly in East Austin in apartments. They actually housed them at Houston Tillotson. And then um, there was actually a lawsuit by two young black women um, to enter the, the, um, the dormitories. And this is, has not been totally fact-checked, but um, the story of a story of a story is that at the time, um, Lyndon B. Johnson's oldest daughter, Lucy Baines Johnson, was at the University of Texas. And he was running to, um, for, uh, to be vice president at the time. And he said, you know, I can't have my daughter attending a school that says that it's integrated and it's not. So literally he wrote a letter, right, to the president. And the lawsuit was dropped and we integrated dorms. So I think sort of the impetus for Ruben bringing that up is this idea of like, the power is always there, right? The ability to shift systems is always there. So we integrated a living situation that had been segregated for 100 years based on a letter. Um, and the same thing was done around creating a hospital. Michael did said, sure, I got this like 
$100 million burning a hole in my pocket. Why not, right? Um, so it's a matter of being forceful for what we value as a community collectively. You're listening to Money and Mean It. For additional content and information about upcoming events, visit socialcapitalmarkets.net. I'm getting a sign back here for questions from the audience. My name is Kate. Um, so the inequality.org turned out a really dismal report also recently about the racial wealth gap, and it's got a lot of great statistics if you're debating with anyone about the fact that it's not about race, because um, it is. And, and then they churn out like five bullet point areas that we need to focus on from social policy, tax reform, and one of them is reparations. And I was wondering if um, y'all have opinions on using and galvanizing federal funds for reparations. Uh, and I know that's an income thing, but it bleeds into the wealth thing. So just, I'd love to hear what you have to think. Well, uh, I don't know why I'm answering this. Uh, <laughs> But uh, I'll mansplain you guys. Anybody want to? Okay. Uh, so I mean, money matters, and I, I, I would. I'm always so. I just recently, side note, we have a real problem with our uh, the way we work. Um, people pay are able to pay us in cash, and they can also pay back automatic auto draft from the bank account. Short version of the story is we're trying to figure out how to get people from cash into non-cash environment. And I had a great idea. I had the answer. I was just going to give them money. And um, so that was not a good idea, according to our, our friends, uh, the women that, who are our clients. Uh, they themselves came up with a much more elegant, elegant solution that potentially could lead to change. One woman said, look, it's not about the money. Um, I have had to change my behavior to save more money in the way she spent, the way she made money. The only point, this has actually absolutely nothing to do with the racial part. My question would be, how might we use that in reparation or something else to catalyze long-standing sustainable change? Because we've been force-fed this notion of consumption, of like, we have people that can't imagine what 10 years would be like. So they spend today like that's never going to happen. And that's because it's a systemic generational belief that tomorrow might not come. So I think there's a massive underlying systems problem that money is only uh, part of the problem. And it's on, therefore only part of the solution. I think just to, to piggyback off that, you know, I appreciate you feeling that one, man. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Break the ice on that one. Yeah, I think, uh, I think we both are over here like, let's see what he has to say about this one. Um, but it's a great question, right? Uh, the way in which we do it, I think, is the most controversial. Um, one thing I think, you know, we, we didn't really touch on is the political climate of today. Um, we're not in the Obama era. You know, this is a completely different political climate where we're trying to build walls and separate each other um, and really start to build a, you know, a, a, a government like we've, we've never seen before. Um, so trying to forecast and think about, you know, a systematic way of, of, of approaching that while we're also battling, you know, building a wall on the Mexican border is tough. Um, it's it's a, a, a process that we all need to 
really think about how do we not make this look like a handout for black people? Uh, because that's what a lot of people are going to say. And in, in the past, it's been you know, welfare and all these other kind of institutions that are in, in place to help you know, the impoverished have been seen as handouts and they're lazy and they don't work and they don't. So if, if we find a way to battle that narrative and have a, a, a clever way of doing it, um, you know, we, we've, we've been able to, to at least get this far as a society of saying, hey, we probably should look at something like reparations um, for you know, some of the injustices that have happened. Um, I think really just having the narrative that, that people are able to say, this is not a handout, this does not you know, exemplify you being lazy, this is not any sort of, of, of negative, uh, kind, kind of uh, negative correlation with us giving you this money. Um, I think that's really, like you said, Steve, the, the underlying premise of how do we go about that. And I think also how we contextualize it, because historically welfare was actually for poor white people, and the majority of people on welfare today are poor white women. Um, but we've created this lovely, you know, um, convenient narrative that it is black and brown people you know, sucking up free resources. I think you can kind of liken it to like a, how affirmative action has played out, right? I work at the University of Texas, we've had a little bit of an issue with that, um, like in terms of policy. Um, and the idea is that we haven't framed it correctly on exactly what it's doing, right? It's not to say that we are elevating black and brown people over deserving white people to get into school. It's saying we have a broken system that otherwise would not create room for these well, um, what's the word I'm looking for, um, qualified people to get in. Um, and the truth is, it's been operating like that forever. We just don't like to call it that. Like, it's called legacy. Well, why did you get into UT? Because your SAT stores are great? No, because my great-great-grandfather went there and my aunt went there, right? And so I think it's about framing, I think, reparations, right, if contextualized correctly, um, could work well because we've done it in other areas. We just haven't been truthful about the way that it's been, that it's been executed. So, another question. So Virginia, you kind of talked about being forceful as a community uh, in our values and the Dell Med School and the integration story that you told were largely driven by private philanthropic investments or people with power like that. How we can be um, forceful as a community in our values while influencing those private philanthropic decisions. So I'm gonna take it back to sort of political context, just as an example, because I think there's like a hundred ways to answer your question. We only have like two minutes. Um, so let's take election, right, for example, right? Hopefully everyone in this room that was able to voted, right? And we love to talk about like this was a campaign or this was an election about whether Beto was gonna beat Ted Cruz, right? Or who was gonna win district one seat, right? Well, that's just part of the work, right? What happens when the ballot is about, hey, can we build affordable housing in Terrytown? Hey, can we build affordable housing in Hyde Park? hey, can we build a train line that goes through the middle of West Austin and Central Austin, and you say, no, no, no. Then you're complicit to creating an inequitable city because you had the chance to leverage your vote, which taps into economic power at the city, that creates an opportunity to open up access that historically has not been accessible. So when we, and this is an example, because I don't, obviously it doesn't live just within sort of the political structure, but when we have opportunity 
to sh literally shift the system, we often vote on the side of convenience, which is, well, I don't want the train to disrupt my jog to Town Lake. Or, you know, mixed income, I don't know if I, my, my kids will feel safe living amongst poor people or people underneath the poverty line. So that's an example for not all of us have political power in the sense of like we're elected officials, not all of us have access to capital that's over a million dollars, but these are the tangible things that we have access to that historically we have not risen to the occasion because our public transportation system has been shut down multiple times because we as a city say we don't want it. And several times we said, no, don't bring affordable housing into West Austin instead of driving up the housing prices in East Austin and moving people out to Buda and Del Valley and Maynard. So that's just an example on a small scale of how we tap into truly um, defining what our values are as a city and as a community. So let's go ahead and make this party happen. Thank you very much. Round of applause for this panel. Thanks for listening to this episode of Money and Meaning. I hope that you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. If you're interested in learning more about any of the topics discussed, such as Austin's 1928 Master Plan, the Prosperity Now report that was quoted from a couple times, the inequality.org report mentioned during the Q&A, Virginia's book As We Saw It, or other topics discussed during the, the panel, please check out our blog at socialcapitalmarkets.net. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share it with a friend and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Lastly, if you have any suggestions or feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you at moneyandmeaningpodcast at gmail.com. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. You've been listening to Money and Meaning, unlikely allies building new markets for impact. With your hosts, Lindsay Smalling and Alex Kravitz. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are heard. To learn more, check out our website, socialcapitalmarkets.net. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, at SoCapMarkets. Thanks for listening.